Hello, everyone. Redcoat here. And Santier joins him. And we've got another podcast for you. Yes, we do. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about how to design for different types of players when it comes to games. Yeah, so something that's important uh, about this topic is it's not just different types of players among the player base, but it's also players different from yourself. Uh, Both are important to talk about, and I think we'll uh, touch on both of those here as we go through this. Yeah, so... One of the first questions that you got to ask yourself when you're looking at that concept of, you know, designing for different players and different things, as Yenter noted, when you're looking to do this sort of thing, you need to be looking at, okay, I know what I like, how do I know what other people uh, like? And there are many different ways to approach this. Uh, there have been many different systems for just, like, finding these kinds of ideas. Uh, I think, Sancho, you've had a few that you've run into. Um, yeah, one of the ones that I've heard about uh, is the Bartle Taxonomy of Player Types, uh, which was uh, designed by Richard Bartle. Um, it was when he was analyzing other players in multi-user dungeons, or MUDs, the precursors to MMORPGs. Mm-hmm. Um, my impression is these tended to be more like basically chat rooms, just big group chat rooms sort of thing, more along that line than what we normally would think of today as a big multiplayer experience. But there was just different types of players that he identified and different things that they're trying to accomplish, different things that attracted them to those types of games. The one that I'm personally more familiar with are the Magic Player Psychographics uh, from Magic the Gathering, the, the player psychographics, which were initially developed by Mark Rosewater. Uh, and they've been expanded on as uh, the Wizards of the Coast R&D has uh, worked on developing them. So uh, we're going to briefly talk about those Magic the Gathering player psychographics just because I'm familiar with it and to give you an idea of what this concept sort of is. The first of these, we've got um, Timmy. Also of note, I've, I'm pretty sure a lot of you out there are probably familiar with some of these, those of you who are really into this game, into the game sector. We've probably heard the name Timmy, Johnny, and Spike uh, mentioned in reference to card games and stuff. So uh, this is where we're going to start. So we're going to start with Timmy. So, uh, Sienter, why don't you lay it down? Yeah, so the first thing I'll note is when these were first made, they they were kind of given more male-oriented names, so they've introduced female equivalents, so there's a Timmy Tammy, which I think it's worth trying to go for some of that representation stuff, so I'll just mention that in case you see, like, Tammy get used, for example. But it's referring to the sort of person who wants to experience something. They are playing the game for a specific sort of experience, and... To some extent, you could say they might be along for the ride. In Magic, there's an association with things like wanting to have big splashy effects, but that's not always 100% the case. But it tends to be looking for those awesome moments to occur. The next one is Johnny or Jenny. This is somebody who wants to express something. So these are players who they look at the game as a way to express their personality, a way to express who they are. So uh, when you look at these two types of players, there's going to be some amount of overlap. Most people don't don't have just one of these three different psychographics. But when you just at these two, the difference between trying to experience something and trying to express something is quite fundamental. And they will lead to the player looking for different moments in the game. Uh, the last one is Spike, uh, which was considered a gender-neutral term, so it doesn't have a, a variant on it. But this is a, a person who wants to prove something potentially to themselves or others. Um, it can encapsulate both, but it can also just be one of those. So, for example, this is the archetype most commonly associated with tournament players. It doesn't have to be. Timmy's, for example, could want to experience a tournament, but a spike is going to be there either to prove to themselves how well they can do 
or to show to the world and prove to the world that they are skilled at that game. Indeed. As has been noted, these can all very much overlap, and they do a lot of different things to uh, what people want to do in the game and how to really build it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the things like, so when we say, like, with the Temi or the Tammy, that they want to experience something, it's not just in the concept of, well, you know, there's a great story and a great lore behind it. I mean, that is something there. But also that the very experience itself of playing the game creates a story that they can retell to people, makes a very memorable experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are the players who are going to really like those really cool moments in a game, regardless of how... The term that pops in my head is generic, but what I more want is uh, everybody experiences that moment. Yeah. So you can see this in something like an, unchar- un- an Uncharted game, for example, where you can have some really cool moment of something happen, just some awesome experience. And maybe everybody has that, but that's the sort of thing that can really uh, drive a Timmy Tammy player is having that sort of moment. But it can also just be a really cool gameplay moment. So like those moments are things like using Uncharted as an example. It's like you're on the train, the train falls off and it's like, oh man, now I'm climbing up the wall. Um, we're off the side of the, we're off the side of the mountain and it, you know, like, I almost died, but I didn't really. And, you know, you're creating those little situations there. And, uh, segueing from that into, you know, those can be really cool gameplay moments, uh, and things like that. Then we get to Johnny and that whole idea of expression. Uh, at Redco, myself, I'm kind of a Johnny in a lot of ways when it comes to playing things. Now, what does that mean? The, thing about a Johnny is that they want to express themselves, they want to be able to do interesting things within the game um, that kind of comes from their own creativity. And so when you're looking at a card game, it's making it so that the mechanics aren't just immediately cut and dry, there are different ways for them to interact, and there's a space for the player to insert their own take on it. Taking that a step further to video games, that's the idea of any sort of system that allows you to be creative. I think to Marvel vs. Capcom 3, one of the reasons why people like playing that game and continue to keep coming back to it is that idea that you have a bunch of custom combos that you can make and the system is built such that to be effective in that game you basically need to one touch somebody or you know do a ton of damage off of one hit but how you do that can be greatly personalized just across the board and there's a bunch of time that can be spent just in there yeah and there's i I think that there's kind of uh an example of an overlap uh would be potentially somebody who's really going for a role play experience uh in for example dark souls or some other game with that sort of level of customization yeah trying to express yourself through that character through that sort of experience of kind of crafting things can play into a very johnny aspect and there can also be some amount of wanting to experience like if if you're trying to express explicitly yourself, that's more Johnny. But if you're trying to express this character, that can be also going into kind of a Timmy thing where you're trying to experience that character's journey. Of things, yeah. Yeah. Their story. One activity that I really want to, to point to, by the way, speedrunning tends to be a very spike activity. You want to prove how fast you can do the game. Mm-hmm. That said, I think that there is some amount of Johnny or Timmy going on in trying to find routes mm-hmm. through that. Right, like all, all three of them kind of can play into sort of the routing process, right? Because you're trying to come up with really creative ways of breaking things. And I think that tends to be t- almost in some ways more of a Timmy thing to see how can I break this 
yeah. sort of a wacky thing can I have happen that I can tell people about? Oh yeah, it's the um because it's like the many many different speed runs of Mario, right? Mm. If it was just a spike process, then we would only have. Uh, well, I'm not going to say we would only have. Um, we would have the ways that are most technically, most technically proficient, most technically superior, or just really, really testing the abilities of the person to do it. And those would be the main ones to watch. But we have all sorts of different ways of breaking the Mario games where they create these strange and weird situations and do these weird, interesting things. Um, that does kind of go more towards the, uh, the Timmy route. Certainly, I think Timmy's and Tammy's definitely enjoy seeing all of these different, um, ways of doing them. Yeah, seeing what they can do with it. But anyway, that's just kind of a broad example of some of those. And this is a tool for understanding players, right? So there's definitely a lot of room for variation, especially when you're looking across different products, because the fact of the matter is people interact with different products in different ways. There's going to be other ways of dealing with these things, and sometimes you may come across a way of, uh, I guess the word would be, I guess interacting, I've been using that term a lot, a way of interacting with the product in a way that isn't represented anywhere else and actually requires you to define a set of players just in that space. Yeah, uh, that might happen. I think in general you can kind of break it down into sort of what the appealing factors are. Yeah. The, the important thing about these systems is that you're being consistent in terms of using it with your teammates uh, when you're, you're talking with the other people that you're working with, that they understand what you mean when you say one of these sorts of things. And that you're kind of all on board. And it might not be a bad idea to kind of shop around the various systems just to get at least a starting point for potentially creating your own to understand your audience. And you can apply some of these things to to other medium as well. For example, fan fiction is kind of a Johnny activity. Yeah, um, making fan fiction is a Johnny activity. Reading fan fiction and categorizing fan fiction is a little bit more of a Timmy activity. Yeah, I'd agree. And even in there, you can have where somebody's trying to figure out a way to make something that's a really popular piece of fan fiction, right? Oh, yeah. And that's more of a spike approach to it. Oh, yeah. Or proving to themselves that, like, I know there are some uh, fan fiction writers who are supposed to be like, I hate these characters, but I'm going to prove that I can actually write really good versions of these characters, you know, things like that. And that's a sure. spike thing right there. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a Spike-Johnny combo. Yeah, yeah. With that. And that's that's one of the things that's really important to understand is that these psychographics often can kind of blend and mix a bit. Um, and again, that's not the only system out there. And there's there are other ones available. The point is to try to find one of these systems to help you understand players outside of who you are. Because that's one of the things that becomes a big trap, especially on a small team. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have lots of people, then you need to listen to the other people who are not like you, um, because they're going to be able to tell you stuff about the product that you all are working on that you would not get if you did not listen to them. But these psychographics can help, and they can help pinpoint who you're trying to aim stuff for and help you understand to make sure you're producing parts of your game for the players that you want to be producing parts of your game for. Yeah, because that actually reminds me of a, a recent example, a recent game I played, Transformers Devastation. This game actually approaches almost all of the well all the different types we looked at um, hmm. in a certain way so of course you have the main story um, and it's about transformers right so you've got this aesthetic that needs to be 
there. There's a certain feel to the way things are presented. And so there's a, there's a cool experience that feels like an episode in the TV show, right? Okay. So already we have the experiencing part, the, mm-hmm. uh, the Timmy Tammy area where it's like, if you liked what Transformers was all about on the TV show, then you're going to get that out of just going through the story. Yeah. Then they layer on top of that the combat system. Um, which is, uh, as per platinum standard, kind of a Johnny Spike combination thing. Okay. Um, so there's a lot, the combat system allows for a lot of freedom of action, a lot of different things that you can do. You can figure out how to do your combos. Each different Autobot has a different special action that they can do and you can fill that into what you want to do with it and um, there is a way to be very efficient with it but there's also some really cool things that you can do outside of just being efficient so you have that in there the self-expression just in the combat and the way you go through the game and then finally, as you're going through the game, you'll unlock a whole bunch of different challenges. So immediately you have more ways to just perfect your way of playing the game and getting the, the challenge of trying to get double S uh, on every mission and everything. That can put you more into that spike a mindset of just, I can do this game. I can be the best at this game. It recognizes me for this. One of the things about all of that, though, is that all three of these things, you can experience any one of them without needing to do any of the others. That's mm. the beauty of that product is that you can go through the full story. You don't have to be an expert at the game to do that. You don't have to delve fully into Spike Realm to get your Timmy Tammies. The same with the Johnny Jennies. You don't have to delve too far into the... Uh, into the spike realm to get that. And by going through the Timmy Tammy's portion, you get more things to do in the Johnny realm. So it all works together. Yeah. And there's also another sort of axis that, um, cause that's sort of what they enjoy out of the game, um, as opposed to necessarily what they like to do in it per se. Yeah, right. Like yeah. that's, that's the, the magic player soccer graphics are about why a player plays a game. Yeah. And I think to some extent the bottle taxonomy is more about what a player wants to do in a game. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but there's, there's this other concept too. Like when I think about magic, the gathering, there's different play styles. There's like aggro versus I'm just going to play whatever's the best. But like players will generally prefer something. So some players prefer more of an aggro strategy where they're trying to win as quickly as possible. Some players prefer a more controlling strategy where they try to prevent the other person from winning and take complete control of the game before they win. Yeah. And and it's important to understand what sort of play styles your players are going to enjoy, as well as making sure that there's stuff to appeal to the different sort of why players play games, but also what they like to do in them, mm-hmm. that you understand what your players like to do. And that one of the things that's really, really important when you're designing for an audience is to make sure that you're designing for that audience. One of the things that becomes a problem as games get bigger and more expensive is that they have to try to hit a broader audience of players just from a, a pure financial standpoint. Yeah. When you look at Dark Souls 1, it had a fairly niche audience that it was being aimed towards. Mm-hmm. So when they were approaching the design of that game, they were making it more towards that audience. But what you see happen is as that series goes on and it's gotten bigger, more popular, they're having to try to accommodate new types of players who are looking for specific things from it. And that's where you see some of the world structure changes coming from, I think. Um, yeah. Particularly when you compare Dark Souls 1 to Dark Souls 3, uh, the way that the world is structured. And Redcoat and I had an extensive conversation about this the other day. Yeah. But the way that the Dark Souls 3 world is structured is designed such that it is... It's more 
straightforward to navigate. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's it's more linear. You're not going to run into as many zones that are secretly walls, um, especially for new players. Because that happened a lot in Dark Souls 1. If you remember, yeah, you could go down to the ghosts and have no idea how to kill them. Yeah, you could go down there and um, just be like, oh! You could get yourself into Valley of the Drakes. Yeah, and you're fighting dragons, and the poison dragon thing just shows up. And you're like, oh, yeah. what do I do about that? And you can absolutely get wrecked in that area if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Um. And so there's, like, even the graveyard with the skeletons yeah. wrecked a lot of people. And they kind of had the way that you were sort of intended to go, in sort of air quotes, um, towards the Undead Berg, was actually a little hard to find. Yeah, no, that is an interesting thing, because I know most of the first-time players... Like, my first time, I went down to the ghost area first, and a lot of other people just randomly find, found themselves in the cemetery first. Yeah. Um, like, those, both of those paths, I think, are a bit more obvious from Firelink Shrine, especially since you're dropped off facing towards the skeletons. Yeah. And the staircase is pretty obvious down to the ghost area. Mm -hmm. The cliff ledge that you push to take, that's not anywhere near as clear. And then you compare that to Dark Souls 3, yeah. where when you start off that game, it is completely unambiguous which way you're supposed to go. Yeah. You get to the main area of uh, that version of Firelink Shrine, and you can only go one direction, and there's a bunch of dead ends from there, and you basically have... like It's a bunch of linear routes, and there's almost no... No choice about which direction to go, which is unappealing to people who liked the sort of world structure of Dark Souls 1, which was a lot more of a convoluted mess, especially in the first half or so of the game. Yeah. It was a messy, it was a messier setup, but that's what really was the magic of it, I think. Yeah. And the thing is, it, it improves replay value tremendously. Yeah, because that is still one of the biggest things about that game, because I remember I made tons of characters for that one. Yeah, as um, did I. And uh, the biggest thing about making a, making a character build, so to speak, in that game was that it actually changed how you went through the game, specifically. The item layouts um, and what you were after made you make decisions of, I need to go here first, and that changes my route to this, and so I need to go to there. Um, whereas if you're looking at Dark Souls 3, changing your character build doesn't really change where you go until like halfway through the game. Yeah, and even then, like your your first point of decision being... Anyway, it's getting a little off yeah, topic, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm going to rein myself in here. But sort of the, the point that I'm making is they had to do things to accommodate some of the problems. Mm -hmm. And I say problems in, in finger quotes here that came out of a more niche design as they expanded their audience. They got a bigger budget, but they needed to try to target a bigger audience. And part of doing that mm -hmm. was making navigating the world easier. Yeah. And for the players who liked the world design of Dark Souls 1, they're not going to get that from another Dark Souls game, I don't think. Yeah, not to the same degree. At not, not to the same degree because of some of those issues, particularly at the very beginning. There's no good way of handling allowing experienced players to have a variety of paths to take at the beginning of the game and not getting new players super confused without making things really convoluted. And sort of the, the point that I'm trying to make here is as you try to expand your audience base, the number of players that you're targeting, the number of things that they want from a game, you're going to start hitting problems with averaging things. Mm-hmm. Because you want it to be, for example, just hard enough to be appealing to the more hardcore players without being too hard that you dissuade the more casual players. Yeah. 
that will happen a lot. And when you start averaging things out, it becomes very, um, it's basically you're mixing a bunch of colors together. Eventually you, you get matte black and that's not, that wasn't what you originally intended with all of the colors you were putting in. Or even just a gray brown. Yeah, it, you get something that's it doesn't sing anymore. It's uh, it's just modulated uh, to a particular level of experience, and that in of itself can destroy the appeal of a product. Yeah, and so what you need to do is you need to make sure the aspect of your game that you're making that you optimize it for its target audience as much as you can. One of the things that that Mark Rosewater's talked about is one of the lessons he's learned is that if everybody likes your game but nobody loves it, you failed. Mm -hmm. Because the games that people come back to are the ones that they love. And when you have a game that somebody loves, it's almost inevitable that somebody's going to hate the thing that somebody else loves. Like, you're going to get stuff that tends to be fairly polarizing. Yeah. And that's actually a good thing because the people who love it are really going to latch on to it. You want that sort of emotional connection. So trying to make it so that way your stuff doesn't unappeal to players is a good way to make it not actually appeal to players at the strength that you need it to. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that that covers a lot of the stuff we've, um, we wanted to hit here. And just to wrap it up, the basic idea is that there are a lot of different players out there. Um, as a developer, it's up to you to really think about, first off, where you overlap with those players so you know what things excite you and you know what you share with other, with other players in that regard, but also to take some time to analyze where they're coming from and see if you can't develop a certain amount of professional empathy, being able to understand what it is that they pull out of the game and being able to kind of uh, almost communicate with them in that regard and, and build something that they can enjoy. And also the idea that you don't have to make games for everyone. In fact, if anything, you really should be looking more at what's the experience that we want to make, who are the people we're making this for, Let's try and get this game to those people. Yeah. And just kind of um, a couple final points for me. The first one is check your biases. You're going to have them. You're going to have things that you like and things you don't like that are going to be mismatched with other people, where other people will like the things you don't like and dislike the things you do like. Understanding what they like about those, and this is where talking to other people with those differences helps a lot, will help round you as a designer and allow you to be able to make experiences that appeal to people that are not you, mm -hmm. um, which is, I think, a mark of a skilled designer and an experienced one. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, if you have to try to appeal to a broad audience, make sure you know what the various elements, like which segment of your audience the various elements appeal to, and try to make those, as best as you can, appeal to that segment. And don't worry as much about the other segments. If you're making a game with heavy exploration elements and a combat system, make sure that the combat system is really good for the people who want that combat system. Yeah. And make sure that your exploration is really good for the people who care about the exploration. Because if the people do not care about the exploration or don't like it, you can never make it something that they will be happy with. So yeah. don't try. Yeah. Just try to make it something that the people who like it will be happy with. So uh, that's kind of, uh, I think, the last bit for me. Um, 
next time we're going to be talking a bit about sequels or more accurately what other games that have a relation to other games are yeah that that concept of the follow-up title so uh we're gonna go ahead and head to the sign off here this is red coat signing off and this is cntier signing off play the games you want to play boyos